let's say it's an anti-war protest and then you've got 30 people who are like free the dolphins too (laughs) so how's your how was your thanksgiving it was good we had uh we had family over here so uh it was it was nice it's always good to host um ah yes hosting is better it it, is i I think so it seems like it's more work and it it kind of is but it's also easier in so many ways you know you don't have to transport hot plates of something or other you know you don't have to drive all over town anytime i'm not in a car i'm kind of happy i guess and so was it your family that was over or was it um your wife's family, local family? Yeah, or? local family, Allison's family. My family is coming, part of my family's coming in next week. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was family and it was great. The, the cool part was the girl got to hang out with her cousins and they got to just run around and get nuts together for a few hours, which is always good to see, you know? The cousins is a good thing. We, we actually just had, um, uh, Hattie's cousin over today, this afternoon. And, and, um, I mean, it's, it's a level of, of playing energy that we just can't as parents muster. So it's so nice to see her, you know, able to run around, you know, thankfully they, they can maintain this level of energy that we can't in our age. So it's quite nice. Um, just seeing her being able to run around and enjoy herself with her contemporaries. It's good. And you know, the cousin thing is a good thing. Yeah, it is. It's great. It's it's funny to see it all happen and realize, you know, when you were a little kid and you were growing up and you had, let's say, co- you had cousins and stuff, I think, right? Lots of cousins, lots of cousins. Yeah, like that was so primary in your mind. Like that's all you knew and that's the world you knew and that those were your cousins. And it's it's funny to see that, you know, have and having kids were kind of creating that next family for somebody else who's going to take it totally for granted or you know is going to think that that's the way the entire world's always been and yeah for us it's for us it's a real it feels like kind of a part two you know like it feels like this second thing (laughs) for them it's primary it's it's kind of amazing yeah like it was for us growing up just kind of thought Mm -hmm. that was normal yeah. So are you, so this is two days removed from Thanksgiving and presumably a big meal. Um, I obviously, you know, I was working Thursday. We don't celebrate, you know, the big, the big holidays, um, that are somehow missed over here is Thanksgiving and 4th of July. Those aren't big. Um, so I worked Thursday and, and my wife actually made me pumpkin pie, which I had Thursday night, which was great. But I missed out of that usual feeling of eating tons of food and the Friday after, and I guess this is rolling into the Saturday. Um, are you exhausted? Is it uh, kind of food coma time? Are you eating leftovers it, already? Oh, yeah. We're fully into the leftovers. And uh, to make matters worse, yesterday we had like a, a gift certificate for uh, Krispy Kreme donuts. Oh, you my know? gosh. So, Jeez. Talk about so I, I insult to injury. I donut shop. Yeah, and got a got a dozen fresh glazed. So we're just I'm kind of going for it, you know. I'm just wow, uh, yeah. all, all in <laughs> you must this be. weekend. So what's next? <laughs> in a Cinnabon for breakfast tomorrow morning? Or, no, or? no, no, no. But you know, it's weird though. I on Thanksgiving proper, I ate no meat. I mean, you had kind of meat flavored veggie dishes and whatnot, but I I just didn't. I didn't have any ham. I didn't have any turkey, and I just uh, 
I don't know. It, it went, it, it was great. It was great. I loved it. All the side dishes were so banging. Well, that's the thing. The sides are sometimes better than the mains anyway. Usually it's a, you know, for, for me, it was always kind of a dry turkey and I would just, you know, eat the stuffing basically on the side. So, uh, yeah. So, tell, so tell me this. Uh, okay. So when I was growing up, uh, for big holidays, like Thanksgiving or Christmas, my, my grandfather, at least one of my grandfather's was kind of a, a meat master, you know, he's master of the meat <laughs> and like how the meat gets made and like, is it dry or who's doing the stuff or is it brined? And there's so much legwork and mental energy put on that. What was it like in your family? Was there kind of a meat master where you'd talk about it six ways to Sunday? Not really. We didn't really have a meat specialist in the family. We, um, everything went back to the matriarch, my grandmother, who, uh, Italian grandmother, who, who cooked for huge amounts of people. Um, and she would actually cook not just at special occasions like Thanksgiving or Christmas, but we got together in my household every Sunday. So we would go to her house literally every Sunday and about 30 of us would go over. She cooked for about 30, 35 people. Um, there'd be, you know, of those 30, 35, 10 or 12 of those would be kids. And she would make pasta, a big bowl of spaghetti one week, um, fried chicken the next, um, you know, all kinds of specialties. And when it came time for Thanksgiving, she would make a huge bird. And um, my aunt's... Uh, would make desserts and different pies. And so we were kind of used to the weekly familial feast. Um, so Thanksgiving was that only amplified. Um, but no, so well, go ahead. I love your stories about your grandma cooking, especially being this big Italian family and that it was kind of a standard thing for you guys to all go over there every Sunday. It's pretty great. It was, but there is a dirty secret uh, behind it as well, is that she actually, um, and she just turned 100 this year, by the way. Uh, she's still a few months ago. She's still going. She's going oh well. And she's now 100. Um, she turned 100 in June. But my she, grandma's um, like 93. So we, we really? both have a grandparent still, still around. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, she's actually... Lebanese. So my grandfather was Italian and that's my surname and the heritage, but she's Lebanese. Um, and she kind of, uh, absorbed the Italian, um, culture and cooking and all of that through my grandfather's family. So it was an amazing Italian cook. Um, but she's equally good cooking Lebanese and Middle Eastern food. So I grew up with lasagna and pasta some Sundays. And then some Sundays we would have um, kibbe and grape leaves and hummus and um, oh, fantastic. You know, pita bread. And it was really interesting. It was a really interesting mix. And certain portions of my, my family would either celebrate the Lebanese side or um, be less enthusiastic, preferring the Italian side. So it was quite interesting. So they, both your grandma and your grandpa were first generation American. That or they were they immigrated them both of them. Their parents did, so they were second generation. Oh, Their parents okay. did. In fact, I don't know when you start calling it first. Maybe you call it first when you're the first born yeah, I don't in know. America. Like yeah, the, that's the, a good the, question. The um, what do you call it? Like I think about software, like the 
the dot o release is the immigrant but the dot one release is the is yeah the so the betas uh, are just coming right. in yeah exactly right. until you've actually launched something yeah until you've launched a product which would be 1.0 the first person born in that country so i guess they were 1.0s yeah yeah right i guess i'll they tell were. you uh it's funny just when you know you and i talk about tech a lot just because of our backgrounds and what we're into and whatnot and uh to, to extend on that over the last week with Thanksgiving is that every time where I'm like, oh, maybe Twitter's really just not really serving something in my life anymore. Some huge thing will happen, like what happened this week in Missouri with this uh, cop getting not indicted for shooting this uh, Mike Brown in, back in August and all hell breaks loose and... um you can follow this stuff on Twitter in a way that you just can't do any other way. And it's been so interesting. So that's a little precursor to this whole thing that happened yesterday with black Friday. Right. So do you remember when you, when, you know, when we lived in San Francisco, do you remember buy nothing day, you know? Yeah. Adbusters sponsored right. that, right? Yeah. I do. remember yeah. that. And so that was probably 20 years ago. I guess I just found out yesterday it's 22 years old. So, uh, and apparently it was started, I looked at the wiki page, it was started by an artist and then Adbusters kind of co-opted his idea. And then that idea has even, nobody calls it by nothing day anymore. It's been like, it's just called Black Friday, <laughs> right? So it's right. called Black Friday. But anyways, this intersection of by nothing day happened this year with black friday and then all these ferguson protests and it became wow. blackout black friday where african-american protesters supporting the whole ferguson uh uh rigmarole or, <laughs> which is a horrible word for it uh kind of conflated the protest about ferguson into black friday and it became blackout black friday and so there's so much amazing stuff yesterday specifically at some of these malls in missouri in st louis and ferguson where people were going in and protesting the mike brown stuff within the context of black friday so they were having like uh die-ins or you know lions where everyone's just lies down on the ground and so none of the shoppers can walk through them and walk past them and they're and really? they were chanting and running around. People were shutting, they were shutting malls down. Like malls were closing, stores were closing because of these kids protesting. And it's like, it's so uplifting. I love it when protest reaches this level of really connecting, you know, in a, in a strong and kind of um, one direction way rather than most protests that, you know, you get, let's say it's an anti-war protest and then you've got 30 people who are like, Dolph, free the dolphins too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're kind of the add-ons. Uh... Right. Everything gets all, you know, it's just the message just gets watered down so you can't actually get anything done. But So I've been totally, the last couple of days, just really impressed and excited by what folks are doing. Uh, and you've been seeing a lot that. of that on Twitter. So Twitter's uh, been yeah, Twitter. showing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because the, um, you know, the the kind of the, the backlash and what's been happening this week in the States, we've seen a little bit of in the news here, but, but you know, 
as a news flash, not really, I don't really get to understand much behind it. I haven't had a lot of time to read enough online. So, um, yeah, no, I'd love to hear more about it. Feel free to tell me more because I don't know a lot it, about it. it. It doesn't make any sense, especially to people inside the States. Like, I don't even know how you would begin describing what a grand jury process is to someone outside of the States. You can barely explain it to to Americans. I mean, I have such a limited understanding of why grand juries exist, what they're there for, why they're secret, how they work, how this one worked differently than normal grand juries, what the prosecutor does, how grand juries work toward indictments that lead to trials. And mm. basically, uh, he this this cop got off the prosecuting attorney who's an elected official from that area uh, chose not to prat to to indict the officer based on the <laughs> so it's weird there was a there, there's 12 people who kind of made that decision 12 citizens who sat on this grand jury and made that decision and apparently grand juries are very susceptible to what a prosecutor wants so mm. the prosecutor could have said hey let's go get this guy and they would have delivered it to him so um, there's this kind of famous phrase from a writer a long time ago about how grand juries could indict a ham sandwich. So <laughs> that's kind of the power of how they work. The prosecutor says, Hey, we're going to indict this guy and you're going to tell tell him how we're going to do it. Uh, so he didn't do the prosecutor didn't do that in this case. And what makes it unbelievable the story unbelievable from so many different directions and this is just one of the facts is that this guy his last name's mccullough when he was a kid his dad was a police officer and was i believe murdered by a black man oh wow so it's this complete reversal like you can't write a script that's more insane than that you know like this kid's life history growing up like living with that and Becoming a prosecutor who who really uh, believes in protecting cops at all costs, right, 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 <laughs> you right, know, right. because wow. of his own personal history, there is no way that they were ever going to indict this guy. So there's there is a lot of show. Wow, I, I hadn't I hadn't realized all of that at all. That's that's something. Then there was this amazing moment, and we don't have to kind of continue down this road, but it's pretty pretty interesting that there was this moment that didn't get caught by let's say the mainstream media for the first day and a half after this non-indictment was announced and i believe it was on monday night that it was announced so when it was announced the mother of this kid michael brown was i believe she was standing on top of a car close to the courthouse um with members of her family so she has like a very public face. People recognize her. She's the mom. It's an important night for her. So she's on a car and then it gets announced and the word is kind of spreading through the crowd that the prosecutor's not going to go for an indictment. And her husband, so Mike Brown's stepdad, jumps up on the car and is consoling her. Whatever they're standing on, they're, they're both kind of up high and elevated. So everybody's filming them and he's consoling her. And then he turns around and he's just like filled with frustration and and a kind of rage. And he just starts yelling, 
burn this bitch down. Burn this bitch down. I saw that in print. Yeah, I saw yeah. that. Wow, but I didn't see the video of it or anything. Yeah, it's it's funny. The new, there's this guy who um in the last year has started making documentaries for the New York Times, so small like 4-minute documentaries about news stories, and he was in Ferguson and did some work there in August and I'll I'll put a link in the show notes. He he does great work and he in his piece about Monday night, he captured it. Um, but didn't, didn't talk about it. Like didn't say, Hey, look at this. This is really interesting. And thinking about why, uh, half of these businesses on this street ended up getting burned down and why two cop Mm. cars ended up getting burned down. Um, it just, it was the first time I'd seen it was in his piece. And then other people and writers started picking up on it a couple days after the fact, but it's kind of interesting if you look at if you look at crowds and frustration and mob mentality and the fact that he was in a position that everybody was looking, everybody's mm. looking to the mom for her reaction and that he could be this kind of surrogate for releasing the anger that everybody felt. Uh, when I saw it, it kind of made my stomach turn. It just made me feel sad that, gosh, this is, a totally natural reaction he's having. And then it has kind of unnatural consequences in that these businesses that have nothing to do with any of this and that are, let's say even community owned businesses by people, they end up suffering for it. And even, even the church at which um, Mike Brown's dad was a member ended up getting burned down. Um, really so and and then there's so then there's talk about that there were people lighting fires there who wanted to create a story against the community so let's say white supremacists were lighting fires as well to kind of make the scene look worse for the community and so people are talking that that church burning actually was an example of that which is a crazy idea you know what there were there were businesses on both sides of it that were untouched like it's really it's weird but i don't do you remember did we talk about um ferguson a few a a while ago and this live stream i was looking at no so uh maybe around september there was a similar kind of case and it was it was next door to Ferguson or one of these suburbs of St. Louis called Shaw. And, you know, I pick up my phone and I'm, there's this story kind of developing about a cop shooting an unarmed kid in Shaw and killing him. And I flipped on a live stream. Have you watched live streams of breaking news before? Like that aren't run by the media. You know, it's just somebody with a, really good connection and a phone no where is there a site that aggregates this there are um and i guess i guess where i've seen the most have been in this ferguson story uh so anyways i click in so it's like going to ustream or some other site like ustream Mm -hmm. but the the feeds are getting so sophisticated and the quality is so damn good that it's it's unbelievable so there's there's this whole issue and idea in media of 
do you want to sit down and get the context of the news from somebody who's spinning it in some certain direction based on who owns their station and yeah, all the other yeah. stuff ac- according to that? Yeah. Or would you rather see raw data? Like what is the raw data and try to make sense of it yourself? And so these live streams are essentially that raw data. And it's they can be totally troublesome and frustrating to watch because maybe you're watching at a time where nothing's happening or this person is just not in the right place at the right time. But um, when I clicked onto this one of Shaw, there's this crowd had already developed and this kid had been shot dead and he'd been chased through this neighborhood by a cop and there were maybe some other friends involved and at that time, it was like, oh, he was carrying a sandwich. All he had was a sandwich. Um, it would, it had been a, a patrol car had come upon them and had said, hey, what are you kids up to? What are you doing? They ran. And so this guy chased one. The cop chased one into this location and ended up shooting him. And so the, there's crowd had developed. There was anger in the crowd. Um, there was police lines up. And at some point, kind of... As the night went on, I'm watching this for maybe 15, 20 minutes. They pull the tape down and the cops are starting to leave. And so the protesters are able to kind of rush into the crime scene, which was on the kind of front porch of this house. And as I'm watching and you're watching this from a first person perspective, like if somebody was wearing Google Glass, like and they're walking up this hill to this front yard and this guy films the ground and there's this huge blood stain and he was like oh here's the blood like it was so real and immediate and it was shocking like i'd never seen something like that that was so present and and locked into real time and this cop immediately comes up to him and he's like step back step back and the fire department comes in and they start spraying away all the blood and like, wow. that's what fire departments do, I guess, at a murder right. scene. Like they show up last and they wash away the blood. And to see that unfold in real time through this guy just kind of holding up his phone in the air. And, uh, you know, he was talking about it and kind of interviewing people here and there. It was so moving and uh, kind of shocking and incredible. It was, it was amazing. And you saw it live. This wasn't kind of a replay of that. Was it was Correct. this actually live? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and so you let's... saw the stuff developing on Twitter and just and decided to go see if there was a live stream or was there a live stream link on Twitter that you follow? I might have searched for stream and Shaw together, you know, oh. or, or or live and Shaw, or I might have just seen it come up as a link to a live stream. And, uh, yeah, you know, and let's say there were three people who were streaming in that crowd and like only one of them (laughs) showed the experience that I saw, you know, like it's, it's a real kind of hit or miss thing. Uh, but when you, but I, it, it hit and connected so well with me, uh, it just, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and it was just so powerful. (laughs) Wow. Well, how about, um, in Atlanta, Sorry, did t- I take what did I take like fifteen minutes to describe? No, that, that was a, that was a great um, that was a really vivid uh, description of that. Actually, uh, no, you had not mentioned that to me before, and and I had seen or just read a bit about some of the um, demonstrations or protests that had happened this week, and some had happened in Atlanta. Correct? Have yeah, there been some stuff in Atlanta yeah. this week. 
Yeah, there was. And there were actually like two demonstrations that kind of got together. And and then, of course, there were like the ruffians who were breaking windows as part of it. And there's a, there, there's a part of me that's completely torn where um, I want to be out there, if only to just have the wind in my face and hear chants in the street and to have a perspective on your city that you never get, which is which is that of a pedestrian walking down the middle of the road. Like you never get to actually have that experience any other time than if, if you're protesting or in a parade. And I love okay. that feeling so much. Uh, but I also, and this is just from San Francisco and some incidents that I, that I had during some of the Gulf war. Uh, actually it's not Gulf war. What would be 2000, uh, 2004 oh, the, would be uh, Iraq war. Yeah. The, yeah. The second and war, I suppose. There there were um I think there was a critical mass Iraq war protest was the one that I really remember, uh, where you're just basically like riding your bike all over the city, kind of getting chased by cops, and it's kind it's fun and interesting and um it raises your pulse a bit. But when the cops show up with rubber bullets and riot gear, like I just, I go home. Like yeah. that's when I yeah. go home. Like I, I don't like getting close to that energy. Um, and I had a friend who I went to school with in Oregon and I'm no longer, you know, I, I haven't seen her in years and years, but she protested uh, some stuff. I guess it was Iraq war as well on the Oakland docks and was shot with a beanbag and it re it like destroyed her leg. I believe like it really messed mm -hmm. her up and she ended up suing the city of Oakland and it went on for years and years and years. And in fact, this woman, this pregnant woman, I believe in Ferguson got shot in the eye with a beanbag, um, on Monday or Tuesday night. And those, <laughs> they, they're non-lethal, but they can really mess you up. Um, and it, so yeah, when I see, when I see cops in riot gear and I made that decision in San Francisco a couple times and it was always the right decision, I'm like, I'm going home, you know, yeah, <laughs> like other, yeah. other, other people can fight that fight. I'm, and especially now, yeah, especially now with, <laughs> with, with a kid and just with a kind of more, uh, family oriented existence than just being yeah, a free absolutely. freelance player. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess the um, the way you had described that person who was kind of live streaming from their phone, I guess, or a, what, like a GoPro yeah. or something. Um, but have you ever been tempted to do anything like that? Or I, I guess, you, you, as you say, it gets to the point where things can kind of spill over really quickly. So, so you do, you know, you want to be around a bit of that, but not too much bullets tear gas um those those bean bags i just yeah i don't i, I i'm not all laissez faire about that i i just i don't i'm not interested in that yeah, yeah. Like it. it's it's not that it's not worth it it's just not my temperament i think i think um it some other people's temperaments kind of hook in with that and it's like oh okay you're gonna do that well i'm gonna do this and like yeah, yeah. or it even keeping your up. wits about but see, this is the thing is that accidents happen. Like, let's say you're, oh, well, I'm 50 yards out of their range of fire over here on this left side. Like, 
stuff happens. Accidents happen. Like you think you can be smart about a particular situation, but it can it can accidentally turn totally against you. That's I mean, and to extend that to the world of photography and you look at people specifically like this guy, James Noctway, who's the, probably the most famous and recognizable war photographer. It's like, yeah, you're smart, buddy, and you have a lot of luck. Um, he's actually been shot at least twice really? in the last 10 years. But, um, yeah, there's a, there's a clock ticking on luck. Yeah. <laughs> luck can only last so long. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. There's hubris involved in thinking that you won't get hurt, I think. Yes. Well, there's almost that um that teenager live forever thing uh that just doesn't wear off, I suppose, on some people. When did you feel that way? Do you do you remember feeling that way? Uh the only time um that I did kind of, I guess, really enjoy it or get a high out of it, um was when I went to the West Bank, I think. Um, right, and right. I, oh, man, I forgot about that. I had a camera, and I, because I had done some work um, that had me in Israel in, in an area called Netanya, which is near Tel Aviv on the West Coast, so far away from the West Bank. And I had driven by, or I'd seen signs of Jerusalem and was always interested in it, and always been kind of fascinated in the Israeli-Palestinian situation, read lots of books and you know, very firmly felt felt very strongly about, um, you know, the injustice um, and the Palestinian uh, view on things just, just from reading. And, and to be honest, here in the UK, the press is, and I, I bet it's probably still a bit like that, but it's a little bit different than the press, I think, still is in the US, where it's, it, it's a little bit more on, in, in Europe in general, it's a bit more on the Palestinian side of things or representing their um, hardship, as it were. Whereas, uh, you know, growing up, I'd always heard, you know, it's, you know, one has to defend Israel and Israel needs to be defended, et cetera, et cetera. And um, until I was there and actually saw it, um, it, you know, taking a hunch that there was more to see, I decided to, you know, spend an extra week and um, and go beyond uh, just kind of the business meetings and went in Jerusalem, went into the West Bank, saw um, lots of uh, refugee camps, saw the wall um, that is up and dividing the West Bank from, from Israel. And I started getting really bold about it. So I was taking pictures. And as you know, I was posting pictures and comments and all that. And it was, I think it was my second trip there. We went to Nablus. So the first trip, we went to Hebron and saw um, some crazy stuff. And, um, you know, the, the settlers there um, are, are really, um, they're, they're really um, aggressive and aggressive in anybody that kind of comes in and they throw bottles and rocks and stuff like that. But I never saw any of that. And that never got anywhere near me. Um, but in Nablus, what was interesting is that that city is one that has regular protests and there's regular, um, you know, shootings and, and firing into crowds and that kind of stuff whenever it happens. And there's a, a huge checkpoint in Nablus that's really famous. Like, I can't remember the name of the checkpoint, but it, there's flare ups there all the time because to go through a checkpoint. And this is just separating parts of the West Bank where people have to go to school or have to go to a neighboring village. The, um, you know, it takes hours. You stand in queue for hours. And with my passport, I'm 
flying through these queues. And as we got through this checkpoint leading up to the town of Annapolis, I saw a couple of tanks and I was really getting excited. I was like, wow, I've taken pictures of lots of things so far, but not tanks. So I started snapping pictures of these um, IDF, Israeli Defense Force uh, tanks. And um, I was zooming in and taking some good pictures as they were moving around and hopping around the terrain. And all of a sudden, this um, this Jeep kind of thing, this Israeli kind of um, Land Rover Jeep, uh, pulled up and they grabbed me and threw me in the back of the Jeep, locked the doors of the Jeep and started saying that I'd done something illegal, taking pictures of, of military vehicles and um and and I I was scared to death at that point, but I was wondering what kind of led me up to that point because I knew and someone had warned me and I, it was in the back of my mind, but it, I didn't pay heed. You shouldn't take pictures of the tanks and stuff. You can do just about anything else, but they don't like that. They don't like you taking pictures of any of their stuff. And I basically just kind of negotiated with them to let me go if I deleted all the photos. And they sat with me for like half an hour, went through my memory card, make sure everything was deleted. Um, my friends who were with me stayed by the Jeep. They were kind of like making sure that they were watching or kind of bearing witness to whatever was going on in the Jeep. And about half an hour later, they let me out and, um, you know, with fairly stern warning, as it were, um, you know, the first half hour threatening to throw me in jail and all this stuff. And as I was walking away, I was realizing, yeah, that was probably a little too close. That was a little silly. So I kind of stopped taking photos, put my, my, my camera in my bag and just kind of listened to stories and recorded some, some conversations. But yeah, that was, you know, you get into it at the moment and I had gotten away with taking pictures of settlers and taking pictures of all kinds of stuff you're kind of not supposed to. And I was feeling like, I was feeling like my camera was almost like a gun, you know, I was feeling really big about my camera. And so when I started taking pictures of the tanks, I was like, yeah, this is going to be great. I can't wait to post this on Flickr and make a few comments. And whew, after I got thrown into the um, the Jeep, I definitely, my career as a conflict photographer <laughs> ended abruptly. That was the end of that. But yeah, you do, you get almost a bit of a high. And I imagine that there's probably people professionally, these embedded journalists and photographers that, you know, it's a buzz. It's, it's something that you've got to keep topping almost in a way. Yeah, I think it is. I, I think it. I think it's a state of mind that um, once you have access to it, you you want to continue to keep that access. You know how in stressful situations, there's a kind of clarity that comes through, and a and a and a um, relationship to time and to life that feels really essential. I mean, I could see wanting to continue that. Uh, I, I bet emergency room doctors feel similarly tapped in but conflict photography is changing just as regular photography is too in that the kind of means and modes of production have made it so easy that anybody with an attitude and a and a DSLR and a plane ticket to Libya can show up on the ground and try to um, make pictures and that nobody else is making and so it's put a lot of uh, neophytes kind of in the way in in recent stuff, specifically during Arab Spring, which is it's kind of a scary thought. Yeah, so has there been a lot of, I guess there's been a lot of amateur photographer types that are getting themselves in a lot of rough situations, just, you know. Yeah, and I guess the hard part is, is that the guys who go there regularly, and it tends to be guys, so there are a few women who do it, um, they, they tend to be the big brothers for these people and you kind of have to 
shepherd them around and make sure that they're not getting into too much trouble. And then your own work starts to suffer. It's a dangerous game, man. <laughs> yeah, amateur conflict. You're right, because now that, you know, that with the social media, being able to post pictures quickly, everybody kind of fancies themselves being able to, to you know, capture some, um, you know, uh, key photo and uh you're right they get themselves in really rough situations just for fun in some ways i know for me it was yeah i mean it, I, it was curiosity you know i wanted to see the rest of israel and see some of the west bank and then i just got a bit of a high on the picture taking part of it it happens i love that that you took that trip just because you were interested and it's so funny to think about how it would change things if everybody who had an interest in what was going on over there took a trip over there and saw it for themselves, me included. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. It, um, yeah, it's made me think about, yeah, that same type of thing, which is, you know, maybe all the things I hear news wise, I should go check out. And, and there was a time actually where, um, you know, I got such a, in fact, such a high out of going there. I was starting to think, okay, what other, you know, I would almost look at a map and say, okay, what other kind of hot zones can I go into and check <laughs> out? And um, what, where is there other, you know, huge um, controversy and two sides to an issue I need to go check out? And you got to be careful. You got to check yourself with that stuff. So, yeah, the, the closest, the closest I ever got was uh, being in a cab in, in Burma when, the government was secretly relocating the capital from Rangoon to this uh, city they were building essentially in the middle of the jungle in the middle of the country. And so they were secretly relocating the entire government apparatus, which included, of course, you know, offices, which have filing cabinets and plants and <laughs> real mundane stuff like that in them. And I was in a cab kind of worked into this chain of trucks that were leaving the Capitol. And I was photographing from the taxi, making my driver really nervous. And then like Hi. hiding the camera as we were passing these trucks, you know, w that were armed to the hilt. Uh, and yeah, that was as close as I got to doing something that uh, could have got me in some trouble. Wow, yeah. When did you go nerve, to Burma? When was that? It was 2004. Oh, right. Yeah, it was 2004, yeah. It was a good trip. It was incredible. Oh. That place is unreal. And very interesting yeah. to see what's happened since then. I mean, they've had this, the the Saffron Revolution or whatever they called it, I think in maybe 2008, 2009, and what, Obama was there just two weeks ago with Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, the place is opening up and changing and I'm glad that I at least caught a glimpse of it before it gets, um, you know, before it changes even more. Yeah. Did you take a lot of photographs? Obviously, you, I'm yeah. sure you did. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've seen any of your... I'm sure I would have seen them. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I shot yeah. a lot of film there. Uh, they didn't really... They didn't hang together in, into some kind of project or make any kind of sense in a real presentable way. They're They're, you know... They're kind of unbelievable pictures, but um, I don't I think I remember took anything great. It's not Burma. I don't know, but I thought about it. I thought it, this could be Burma, but I seem to remember you shooting either a video or photographs. Maybe it was Ethiopia. Yeah. Where you were seeing hyenas at night or something. Yeah, yeah, right. You've, there's this, there, <laughs> right, there's this place 
That's one of the crazier things. And this little um, event is something that's been completely built for tourists, but there are so few tourists to this place that, you know, nobody really does it. Um, but yeah, you at night, this is in this medieval ancient Arab city called Harar in Ethiopia. And you go out to kind of beyond the gates. It's this walled city. So you're outside the gates and beyond the gates, it's just desert and scrap land. I mean, it's just for as far as you can see into Somalia or wherever. Uh, and what happens at night, these hi wild hyenas come in from the desert and you feed them and you feed them like raw meat, right? They're carnivores. Mm -hmm. They're wild animals. They're crazy looking. And you feed them with like raw meat on the ends of end of sticks. And I can't remember if I fed one from my mouth. <laughs> That's what? the thing. <laughs> yeah. Where the guy's like, eh, put the stick in your mouth, you know. And he's not speaking English. And you're just kind of everything's pantomimed. I'm not sure if I watched him do it or if I did it. Uh, such is the weirdness of memory. But I definitely, I fed them stuff from my from the while holding this little stick, you know, like a foot and a half long stick. And you look at the end of it and there's this like infested mangy wild hyena on the end of it. <laughs> eating and, some but I mean, dinner. that's not particularly <laughs> safe because hyenas, I mean, that's not, uh, yeah, they're, know, they can attack. They're, yeah, they're disgusting animals. And like if you're, and basically you're out there with like, let's say two guys, uh, some car headlights, you know, <laughs> illuminating the desert like... <laughs> and like uh, maybe like a Dutch couple because like Dutch couples are everywhere, right? Like you can't go yeah, anywhere very in, the, in the world Dutch, without running yeah. into a Dutch couple. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was like me and a Dutch couple feeding these hyenas. It, it's, it sounds um... like hyena lamping almost. <laughs> hyena know. what? Lamping? Isn't that isn't that what they call, um, you know, when people get drunk and they, they drive around on pickups and... And they put a searchlight in the back of the pickups and they shoot, uh, oh, I don't know. In Australia, they'll shoot kangaroo. But in, like, let's say in the South, in America, they'd shoot, I guess, deer or something or possums. I don't know what they shoot. Hey, speaking of, do you, do you remember when you were a kid and, like, getting into Woody Allen movies that, do you ever remember seeing a clip of him boxing a kangaroo? No. Have he you, actually boxed a kangaroo? Yeah, have, you've heard of the term kangaroo boxing, right? Uh, I mean, only so much as I've seen from cartoons, I guess. So, so I don't know. When I was growing up, I remember, oh, like there's this thing called kangaroo boxing and they probably did it like in the roaring 20s, you know, like and they'd sell tickets and like you, uh -huh. could, you couldn't tell if it was real or like a cartoon, you know, you couldn't tell if it was this real thing, you know? Uh, right now yeah, i didn't think it was a real thing anyways I, I heard about this video from another podcast and went and looked at it and it, yeah it's like an it's like a tv show probably early early to mid 60s and they've got this kind of fake boxing ring and a and a referee who's probably the kangaroo trainer and woody allen is this kind of pantomiming boxing with a kangaroo and okay so so it's so crazy. And it when you watch it, it looks fake because I haven't seen many kangaroos move. Like, it's hard to understand the physics of how they move. But the way it punches, 
is it leans back on its tail and what? the tail supports it while it kicks its hind leg at you. Oh, it, oh, so it, it kicks you. It doesn't put little gloves on its little paws. I think it has gloves on its little paws, but those aren't the punches. Right. That's not how it punches. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So it's those big floppy feet are kicking you. You got to see it. It doesn't make any sense. And it happens kind of toward the end of the match. The kangaroo just goes apeshit and, and punches or kicks, like really kicks the trainer. And wow. like Woody Allen is like definitely not taking it seriously and playing it for yucks. And like, you know, like the kangaroo will do something and he'll mimic it and just to like get a laugh and be funny. Uh, but yeah, kangaroo boxing was like a real thing. And they don't punch with the little hands. Those are the two surprising things. They support, and the third surprising thing is they support their weight on their tail while they kick their legs out. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Because those little hands are kind of vestigial. They just kind of <laughs> sit there. They can't really grab anything. They're kind of like Tyrannosaurus Rex hands. They just kind of floppy, little floppy things that just <laughs> they just sit there. And if you know, maybe with momentum, they, they could slap you. But that's basically it. Here's the other thing that I don't know about kangaroos, but kind of trips me out is that is that okay when you're a kid and you're learning about kangaroos, it's like oh they have a pouch. Oh, and they've got a joey in the pouch. It was always called a joey, right? like a baby yeah, kangaroo and so you think about it like is this like oh it's like a pouch like a pocketbook like this it sits in there but it actually i think it's like um like what kind of skin is inside the pouch it's not fur lined i think it's like it's almost like kind of in being inside a body <laughs> like it's like pink flesh that's inside the pouch like it's not furry in there like all it's right, more right. like being like yeah, in somebody's inside somebody's body. <laughs> that yeah, that's weird? awful. <laughs> and that's a marsupial thing, right? Because like yeah. all marsupials have pouches, possums, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and they must all have that nasty skin. It's all pouch. nasty. Yeah. The, yeah. The, <laughs> the, and you know, last time we talked about this possum that was in our basement. And have you? <laughs> one night I was riding my bicycle in Oregon, and. And a possum walked across the street in front of me and I had my bike light on it. And as I got closer to it, I saw that it had all these babies, like eight babies, but oh, they weren't God. in a pouch. They were clinging to the bottom of the thing. And they were probably each was oh, like yeah. maybe two inches long and they were all moving and like newt like and pink and hairless. Oh, that's a horrible image. It was so gnarly. That is awful. I was just about to tell you, I'm uh, I'm getting called down to dinner, but I don't think I want to eat it anymore. I have this image of writhing baby skinless possums. Oh, man. Oh, I've Dude. never seen that before. Yeah, that's rough. That's rough. 